Hey, what up? This is Shegs from ShegsAndStuff.com, and this is part three of a blog series through the Old Testament book of Esther, and today's blog post is titled, When All Hell Breaks Loose. So we are in Esther chapter three. We're actually going to start a little bit earlier in at the uh, last verses of Esther chapter two. But before that, let me tell you a little bit of a story about me. So I was in my sophomore year in college, and I was struggling through my course load while at the same time trying desperately hard to make financial ends meet. And I remember one evening um, I, I was working on a just difficult paper when my brother calls me and the first thing he says is, are you sitting down? Now, as soon as he said that, man, his tone immediately told me that what he was going to say next was going to hit me like a brick to my chest. And he goes, hey, Shagan, um, dad just suffered a heart attack. Now, he actually went on to explain what happened, but I, I don't even remember or recall much of the conversation after that initial initial statement. Like it was the most surreal experience I've ever had. I mean, aside of the fact that I couldn't imagine my dad's heart working up the nerve to even dare to attack him because the guy was just always so tough and he was, you know, just one of those tough, rough guys. And and beside of that reality, he and I were several thousand miles apart. So it wasn't like I could just rush home to his bedside. You see, my father was in Nigeria at the time. I was in New Jersey and my brother was calling me from Maryland to relay the message he had just received from my mom back in Nigeria. So, man, it was just a it just shocked me through my system off. And it, it was one of the lowest points of my faith because I could not even find the strength to pray to God for for comfort. And that moment hits every one of us. And in fact, none of us is almost ever, never, none of us is ready for that, for that moment, right? We're never ready for that moment. The reality, however, is that there comes a time in every life when all hell breaks loose. You know, one day all is calm and chill, but man, by 7 p.m. that same day, you feel like you have just been inhaled into life's backdraft. Life ain't always pretty, is it? But lest you begin to despair, take heart, because there's actually hope ahead in this story. Because in today's blog post, in this third installment of our series through the Old Testament book of Esther, one of the main characters, Mordecai, is about to feel the full weight of his own all hell breaks loose moment. By the way, in case you're wondering, my dad actually made it out okay. Uh, not only that, but God actually provided a financial means for me to travel to Nigeria to go see him. And through that experience, God strengthened my faith and he strengthened my father physically and spiritually. Um, it's several years later now and Pops is in heaven. But just, just so you know, that incident turned out for good. Now, back to the story, back to Esther chapter 2. There's actually a prelude to chapter 3, which is in the end of Esther chapter 2. And in the closing verses of Esther chapter 2, we read that Mordecai's proximity to the king's palace actually exposes him to a conspiracy to take the king's life. Now, remember, Mordecai is older cousin to Esther, who was made queen in last week's message. And so uh, Mordecai hears about this conspiracy to, 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 to kill the king. And so he, in turn, conveys the plot to his cousin queen, Esther, and she communicates the, the information to the king, giving full credit to Mordecai. And so the matter is investigated by the palace, and they find it to be true, and the culprits are arrested and 
executed, right? So that's the end of chapter two. So we, we leave chapter two going into chapter three with the expectation that Mordecai is a hero, right? Like not only is he a hero, but chapter three should open by telling us that Mordecai was celebrated and rewarded by the king for foiling the evil assassination attempt. But instead, here's how Verse 23 wraps it up in chapter two. It ends by saying this, that all of this, that's what Mordecai did, was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. <laughs> in other words, they basically told Mordecai, thanks, Mordecai, good looking out, buddy. We'll, we'll take a note of it in the king's journal, right? And and as observers and readers, we're going, seriously? Like, like to say that life isn't fair at this point would be an understatement, especially in light of what is going to happen next when we get to Esther chapter 3, verse 1, because it opens by saying, after these things, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. Now, something, something, I don't know about you, but when I read that, something, it's, it throws me off, right? It throws me off because the first thing I'm thinking is, who the heck is Haman and what in the world happened to Mordecai's reward? Well, like, shouldn't Esther 3 verse 1 read, after these things, King Xerxes honored Mordecai, right? Not Haman, Mordecai. But that's sometimes the reality of life, isn't it? Sometimes, and listen, this is hard to hear, but sometimes you will work hard. You'll do the right thing. You'll stand up for the right cause. You'll take the high road, but someone else will get the reward. But listen, as sad as all that is, man, at least for this story, it is only the precursor, really the calm before the storm, uh, before all hell breaks loose. In fact, it's here that in chapter three, that things now take a turn for the dramatic, it takes a dramatic turn for the worse, not only for Mordecai, but for pretty much every Jew living in Persia at the time. And it all starts with the same palace official we met a moment ago named Haman, who was rewarded in place of Mordecai. So we don't know what he's done, but the king is so highly impressed with Haman with his service that he actually promotes Haman to a position that's tantamount to be prime minister. Furthermore, the king commands that homage is to be paid to Haman wherever he goes in the kingdom. In other words, people are to bow in his presence because Haman now bears the authority of the king. This is simple enough, right? Well, not quite. You see, it's not quite simple because Mordecai apparently has a problem with this new order in chapter 2 and, and actually refuses to bow down or pay homage to Haman. Now, to the casual reader, Mordecai may come across as an instigator or, or even worse, you, he may come across as feeling a little jealous uh, about being looked over earlier, but but man, there's a lot more drama going on here. First off, Mordecai himself actually explains why he won't bow at the end of Esther chapter 2, verse 4, by stating this. He simply says he didn't do it because he was a Jew. That immediately tells us that Mordecai's reservation may have been religious in nature. In other words, it wasn't like he was jealous. It may have been religious in nature. Now, though the passage doesn't give us much information to go on, we can speculate that Haman may actually have been claiming some sort of divine status with his 
new title. In fact, in some commentaries I looked at, the rabbis suggested or invented a story that Haman may have been carried around an may have been carrying around an idol, something to which Mordecai felt he could not bow to without compromising some of his values as as a Jew. So Old Testament 101, Exodus 23, 24 says, do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices, right? So so Mordecai might very well have a religious objection to this. Well, whatever the, the real issue may have been, um, Mordecai's defiance stirs up something ugly and just straight up evil in Haman. Like Haman is so furious that he he loathes the idea of just simply punishing Mordecai for not bowing to him. Instead, after finding out that Mordecai was actually Jew, Haman decides that every single Jew in Persia is going to pay the price. In other words, Haman wants to commit suicide. Read it for yourself. Let me read it to you. Esther chapter 3, verse 6 to 9. It says, Yet... Having learned who Mordecai's people were, Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Verse 8, Then Haman made his way to the king, to King Xerxes, and says to him, King, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. He's lying about that, but let's keep reading. And he tells the king, he says, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So, verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, that's the Jews, and I, that's Haman, will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Now, clearly, this is an extreme reaction to one man wounding his pride, right? This is between Haman and Mordecai, but he's just escalated. I mean, talk about things that escalated too quickly, right? Now, as a rule, whenever someone's reaction is excessively disproportionate to another person's action, then it tells us that there is a deeper issue than the obvious matter that necessitated the overreaction, let me say that again, because I know it was a mouthful. As a rule, whenever someone's reaction is excessively disproportionate to another person's action, then it tells us that there is a deeper issue than the obvious matter that necessitated the overreaction. And that's just a fancy way of me saying Haman is nursing a more sinister grudge with Mordecai than Mordecai even realizes. Like there's something a lot more, something deeper bugging Haman than what's obvious. Now, luckily, this passage actually gives us enough hint for us to discern what the real matter is. So let me help you get some sense of what Haman is thinking. If you look at back at the beginning of Esther chapter 3, the first verse, you'll note that Haman is introduced to us as Haman the Agagite. So a little bit about the Agagites. The Agagites descend from a king named Agag, who was the ruler of the Amalekites. The, the um, Amalekites are ancient enemies of Israel. And, and by the way, you, 1 Samuel 15 tells us about them. Um, 
so, so there's a, in fact, there's a pretty dramatic battle in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 to 13, between the Amalekites and the Israelites right after they fled from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And even in that account, way back in Exodus, the Israelites won that skirmish. Well, several generations later, they would face off again under the leadership of a king named Saul, a Benjamite of Israel. Remember that, he's a Benjamite. Now, in that account, in 1 Samuel 15, God ordered Saul, the king, to utterly destroy the Amalekites. I mean, to wipe them out with the whole army, including their king, Agag. Saul, in that account, actually only partially obeyed God. In fact, he tried to play fast and loose with God's instruction concerning Agag himself and the wealth of the Amalekites until a prophet named Samuel intervened and put Agag to death himself. Well, Haman is a descendant of one of the Amalekites who actually survived that mass slaughter. So when he finds out that Mordecai is not only of Jewish descent, but is actually from the tribe of Benjamin, as Esther chapter 2 told us last week, um, man, he, he gets deeply upset. So that's where his anger is coming from. That's where Haman's anger is coming from. He probably grew up his whole life hearing stories about how uh, the Jews wiped out his people. So he wants Jewish blood to fill the streets of Persia. And, it, and if you think about it, it's actually kind of poetic because when you think about what happened, um, Israel had been commanded by God long ago to completely wipe the Amalekites off the face of the map. Well, the Israelites didn't obey. As a result, an Amalekite, that's Haman, is now planning to wipe Israelites off the face of the map. So I think it's a good moment here. In last week's message, I sort of waited till the end of the message before I gave you the big idea, some lessons from it. My wife spoke to me this week and said, why don't you integrate it into the sermon? So I'm going to take a pause at this time and, and share with you, uh, at least there are two lessons in the story I want to share, but let me share with you the first one that seems rather apparent to me. So lesson one from this account is this. That grudge that you are nursing right now against whoever will only increase in toxicity over time. So, so over the course of your life, you, you will, because it's just real, over the course of your life, you, you will more than likely hold on to one or, or several grudges against other people. And when I talk about a grudge here, I'm speaking here of a persistent feeling of ill will and resentment resulting from a past insult or injury that they afflicted on you. And boy, I got to be honest, I've unfortunately carried my share of grudges all to no avail. So, so Haman in this story is a classic example of what happens when a grudge has become toxic. Like his deep-seated resentment towards the Jews has fully grown into mass murder, or at least it's growing into mass murder. Now, you may think that and you may read that and, and think to yourself, man, Shex, just calm down, bro. I mean, sure, I can't stand looking at whoever's face, but I got no plans of doing him any harm. Just chill. Okay, if that's what you're thinking, that's fair. But let me remind you what the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. In other words, choosing to hold on to bitterness in your life is tantamount to finding a stray kitten and bringing it into your home. 
You bring this kitten into your home, you love its beautiful smile, its soft coat, its cute paws and, and purrs, and you're, you're just you're enthralled by it. You become so accustomed to this kitten that, that you're not even aware over the years that it is growing up to become what it was always destined to become until one day you walk into your house and that kitten you adopted years ago um, is a 200-pound tiger that pounces on you and begins tearing you apart piece by piece. Does that sound a little overdramatic to you? It's okay. Read on. Because later on in the story, Haman's grudge, man, it's going to pounce on him like a 200-pound tiger. Listen to how the scripture describes how you and I are to address bitterness or grudge in our life, right? So, so, so this is what the scripture says we are to do so that a grudge does not become toxic in our lives. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 and 21 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the sight of everyone, in the eyes of everyone. If it is, impos- if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge and I will repay, says the Lord. Now on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Therefore, do not overcome or do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That was Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 21. So there are three things in there that I want to quickly remind you as far as dealing with grudges. Number one, as much as is humanly possible, you should initiate restoration and reconciliation whenever the opportunity presents itself. Or, or in fact, you should not only when it presents itself, but you should go out of your way to make that opportunity available. Matthew 18, 15 talks about how to go about that. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. So as much as it's humanly possible, you should initiate reconciliation and restoration with someone you're holding a grudge against. That's one of the points from Romans 12. Number two, allow God room to fight on your behalf in instances where you feel you've been wronged. By allowing God to fight for you, you know that it's going to be a fair fight. He, he knows your true motive as well as the person who offended you. And frankly, God is in the best position possible to determine who gets a smackdown and who gets a pardon. And number three, um, responding in kindness to someone who has a grudge against you. Listen, scripture says it'll frustrate their efforts to do you further harm. So get on these three right away. Otherwise, that cute kitten you've been carrying around, man, it's going to turn into a tiger and tear you up. So that's the first lesson from um, that, that stands out to me, that grudge. Don't let it become toxic in your life. Now, back to Haman's story, we find that his grudge is actually still a kitten in chapter 3 as he schemes and plots the demise of every Jew in the Persian kingdom. So, so he falsely implies to the king that the Jews are a threat to national security, to the welfare of the king's vast empire. Now, the king, thinking that Haman is mostly concerned with kingdom affairs because he's been promoted to number two, right? And, and the king is actually unaware that Esther is actually one of those Jews. Not knowing these things, the king signs off on mass execution. And so clearly Haman has gone off the deep 
end. Now, you know what's even more disturbing about Haman's behavior here? It's the fact that he secures official palace permission to carry out his evil deed, get this, on the 13th day of the first month. But the actual order to go out and destroy all the Jews doesn't actually take place till the 13th day of the 12th month. So if you, and you'll see that those numbers in Esther chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. So, so Haman is not content to simply kill the Jews. Man, this guy is waging psychological terrorism on them. Like he's essentially, essentially set things in motion so that every Jew in Persia has to live in terror for 11 months as they wait for the execution orders to be carried out. And it's for this reason that the last verse of chapter 3 says that every citizen in Persia, including Persians who no doubt had Jewish friends, um, were bewildered by, by this news. And so the chapter ends rather abruptly on that very sour note. And in fact, that in itself is a lesson we can learn from. And that brings me to the second lesson we get from the story. And it's this. There will be some painful events in your life that you will experience for which you may find no resolution or immediate answers to. Boy, that, that, that's tough to hear, right? I think the inevitable question that arises when tragedy strikes or all hell breaks loose is oftentimes the question, why? Why? Why, God? Right? Like, like we, we want, why? Why are we suffering? Why, God? Why am I going through this? And what many people may even find more excruciating is the sometimes deafening silence that follows from heaven. We ask God why we don't really hear, so it hurts even more. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've ministered bedside to people struggling through this through this question. And listen, the truth is, man, there is no easy answer that covers every situation. Some of our trials and hardship may be because we are doing certain things right and, and God has deemed us worthy to suffer for his sake. Or we might be suffering because it's a result of sin or the natural repercussion of sin in our lives. Sometimes our hardship may be a result of the repercussion of somebody else's sin. Or maybe God might be using our trial to, to sharpen us, to prepare us for the next thing he's taking us into. And then, of course, we may just be suffering because, listen, we live in a fallen world and painful things happen in a, in a broken world. Once again, there, there are no easy answers to the why God question. Because the truth is, even if God himself were to show up and try to explain what was happening, one author puts it this way. He says, it would be like trying to fit the entire Atlantic Ocean into a little Dixie cup. Our fragile minds and our finite minds cannot comprehend the inner workings and the depth of the mind of an omniscient, omnipotent, though a loving God. But but here's the truth that I think we that I think we can wrap our minds around that we can comprehend. Romans eight twenty eight tells us this that we we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. So you may have heard that verse Romans eight twenty eight. You may have heard that a thousand times. Well, fine, make it one thousand and one. It doesn't make it any less true. And the point is this that no matter what tragedy comes upon you, the Bible reassures you that through Christ in you, God will work in it and through it for your good and ultimately for his glory. 
From your perspective, life may be falling apart and your version of hell may have just broken loose. But listen, there is not a moment of your life that escapes God's attention or not a moment that even transpires without first checking in with him. And more importantly, God himself reassures us with his own promise from Isaiah 43, verse 1 and 3. He himself says, listen, when you go through deep waters, whatever that represents for you, I will be with you. He says, when you go through rivers of difficulty, once again, whatever that may be, God says, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And I'll add to that this, that you are in Christ. As a result, the Lord is your Savior. So no matter how chaotic life may appear right now, no matter if you're facing a Haman in your workplace or in your family or or wherever, know this, you are not alone. The Lord is with you even in a trial. And in Esther's story, man, we, we will see God bring that promise to fruition as God causes what the enemy meant for evil to work for the good of Mordecai, for the good of Esther, and pretty much every Jew in the Persian Empire. So I invite you to join me next week as we continue to discover the story of Esther and we find out how God caused even something evil to work together for good. Well, in the meantime, I invite you to please, at the bottom of this blog post, download the free PDF accompanying devotional study guide as you follow along in this story. May God bless you, may God keep you, and may his great love remind you that he still likes you. 